Energy, energy. My name is Marshall Energy. Energy, energy. Here we go. Welcome back. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to episode 283 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin. And I'm Marshall Bach. Welcome back to another episode. Excited about this week. We got some cool stuff to talk about. Got some follow-up. We have some news. We're going to answer some listener questions. I think that's my favorite thing to do is answer listener questions. They're very fun. Uh, And we got some good ones this week. Before we get into them, we want to thank our sponsor for making this episode possible. Yes, this week we are sponsored by Abstract. Abstract is the design workflow management system that empowers design teams and stakeholders to seamlessly manage, version, and collaborate on design files. So you're a designer, you're sitting there, you got your team, you work with your people, and you're like, how? Like, what does Abstract do for me? (laughs) Well, you just hang tight there. We're going to explain it all. (laughs) Yeah. So today, most design teams work on multiple versions of the same file. You are often duplicating efforts, and as a result, you're overwriting or you're losing work. And design teams are still spending a frustrating amount of hours searching for files and exporting them from one tool and importing them into another tool and consolidating feedback from a bunch of different sources and never really knowing what changes have been incorporated and what's been approved. This is all of the nitpicky work that just sucks to do and Abstract makes it so you don't have to do it anymore. So Abstract was co-founded by Josh Brewer, who uh, used to be a designer at Twitter, and he had personally experienced all of these pains. So how does Abstract solve these problems. Abstract is an end-to-end collaboration tool. It's basically a source of truth versioning system that keeps all of your design files in sync with all the other people on your team. It lets you collaborate in real time. You can collect feedback. You can request reviews from other people on your team or stakeholders on the project. It even lets you present work. Uh, You can use it to hand off specs to your development team. And it's all built on a platform that works both on and offline just making it easier to collaborate with people and do less of the nitpicky nudge work of designing. Yeah, Abstract improves that collaboration process and it increases the transparency between designers and engineers who are implementing the designs from those designers. It's an important aspect of the development process, Brian. <laughs> uh-huh. Just a small a small part. <laughs> so What's really cool is that in just a couple of years, Abstract has over 100,000 users. They got companies like Intuit and Zappos and MailChimp and thousands of others across like 75 different countries. They all rely on Abstract to improve their design workflows. And you know, as the roles of designers and developers and product managers become more and more intertwined, The team at Abstract really believes that a more collaborative and more open platform is going to enable faster production cycles. That's the main thing. So today, Abstract is currently seamlessly integrated into Sketch, which is the design tool of choice for many designers. Probably many of you listening are using Sketch, uh, and it integrates perfectly. Uh, But in 2019, Abstract is going to continue rolling out support for additional file types from the Adobe suite to beyond. To infinity and beyond. To infinity and beyond, Abstract is going to make your life as a designer easier. You should go to goabstract.com right this moment. And you can sign up your team and yourself for a free 30-day trial. It's free. 
Go try it out for 30 days, experience what it is like to version control your files and have that version controlled source of truth work between many people and it will change the way that you collaborate forever and ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, once it's again, that's, it is magical. And if you haven't experienced it, you should do it today. So go to goabstract.com. That's a 30-day free trial for you and your entire team. Get started. Thank you so much to Abstract. Once again, that's goabstract.com. Thanks, Abstract. All right, let's get into 283. Marshall, you had a little bit of follow-up. I did. So last week, my cool thing was this LG TV that rolls up into a little box. Pretty cool. And I had recommended a future feature that they should do, and I expressed umbrage at (laughs) the fact that this feature did not exist. Uh, And I was asking for different aspect ratios because the TV can roll up and down. It'd be nice to get rid of the letterboxing on any given anamorphic or other uh, aspect ratio so the TV is the perfect size. And turns out it does. It does that. It does the thing I wanted it to do. And I had umbrage for no reason. So needed to correct the record. I, I did in the show notes, actually. If you go to last episode show notes, I, I correct myself in a note. But for those who don't read the show notes, here's me. Well, first of all, shame on you. <laughs> yeah, mea culpa. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> uh, my fault. Oh, okay. It's Latin, Brian. <laughs> so fancy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I'm glad the show notes are corrected. If you aren't reading the show notes, you should be reading the show notes. They're very, very good. Oh, thanks, buddy. All right. I have a little bit of follow-up from a few episodes ago when we were talking about security and online privacy. Ramon, I'm going to fuck up the pronunciation of this last name, Hillebert. Close enough. Close enough. Sorry, Ramon. Uh, Ramon sent me a direct message with a couple links to some things that people should check out if they are interested in, in some privacy and security upgrades. So at one point, I talked about using Rescue Time app and mentioned that I was also a little bit paranoid about how useful the tool is versus the fact that uh, it does track everything you do. And so Ramon found a solution. Uh, It's an app called Timing App, timingapp.com. And what he did was he wrapped the network requests to Timing App in a a firewall. So that app can only track things locally and can't actually communicate to the internet. At least that's the way I understood this setup to work. So for people who are interested, we'll have links to those two tools that Ramon used to set that up. But yeah, this is perfect for somebody who wants to track the way they spend their time on their computer without having every website they've ever visited sent to some servers, which is probably a smart thing to do. So uh, thanks for the messages there, Ramon. So that was follow-up. Marshall, you have a little bit of news. Yeah, I do. Um, A new release of Sketch came out this week. I haven't been paying attention to the betas, but yeah, 53 came out. And the main thing that I wanted to call out was a new feature that is part of this update that includes being able to name your color swatches in in the color picker, which uh, I find super useful, especially if if you have a color palette that your company uses or that you're using for a given product or whatever, Um, being able to save those colors and have access to them very easily. If you're just mocking something up, normally those should be like baked into components that you're using with symbols and blah, blah, blah. But if you're just working fast and loose and you want to make sure that you're getting every single color to be the perfect hex value and being able to name all those, especially if there are different slight variations of gray or whatever that you're using, being able to tell those apart in more than just a grid, being able to see a list and name all those things is super useful. And a cool little thing that I found, which was probably intended, but a nice thing that I can share for y'all out there, a little trick 
little tips and tricks with Marshall. <laughs> that can be its own segment. Uh, Here skip. we go. Episode Sketch one. <laughs> yeah. Is if you put colors into into the document colors in a in a blank file, create a, create a new file, put all of your uh, palette colors in there, name them however you want to, and then make that file into a library file, which are important to your libraries. Now those colors will be available globally without showing up in your global colors. So they don't take up space in your global colors because maybe it's just one thing that you're working on, whatever. But you can you can import it into several different files a little bit more manually, a little bit more um, discerningly. Yeah. So a little workaround there, a little nice little nice tips and tricks of Marshall. This has been tips and tricks with Marshall. Well, let me let me slide another question into this tips and tricks section. Sure, sure. Uh, how do you name your grays? I feel like you could go mathematically based or you could say like, Charcoal, steel, <laughs> cobalt. No, I Ash. guess it's a blue. <laughs> Gunmetal. Gunmetal. Yeah. yeah. So, how do you name grays in your personal projects? I like to do it if if it's specifically gray. I usually reference the brightness level, or I would just go like one, two, three, four, whatever. If it's a wide range, I would say like gray twenty-five, gray fifty, gray seventy-five, or something like that. Yeah. Or if it's tighter, I would probably go just an incrementing number. Mm, I see. What do you? What would you do? What do you do for your grays? <laughs> such, such riveting questions we cover here on the show. Yeah, I don't have a good system because the way I want them implemented is different than the way I would want them like labeled in code. Or sorry, labeled in a design tool. Would you do semantic naming, or would you have like um, kind of a constant color that gets reused for different semantic names? I suppose there should be two layers. There should be like gray one two three four five white and black or something like that but then you put a semantic layer on top of that so you have text primary text secondary text tertiary and those just point to the second variable okay that way you're still only changing things in one place but the implementation detail is semantic they're essentially symbol like color symbols (laughs) that get put into several children yeah Consts pointing to consts pointing to consts. So yeah, I I just thought that was a really cool way of using this new feature. I find it super useful. I love that list view instead of the grid view because I could never find, I would always have to hover and then remember the hex value because that's all you got. You couldn't, and actually I was thinking about this just a few weeks ago. I was like, boy, I really wish, because I was hunting and pecking for these fucking little, little squares. Like, which one is it? Is it the third one from the left or the third one from the right? Yeah, this solves all of that. So good on you, Sketch. Thank you for making my life easier. My problem is being disciplined enough to do that at the beginning of a project because throughout a project, I will make very small adjustments. Uh, not a project, but like an exploration. And so by the end, my document colors is 100 grays. But I'm only, I've ended up only using a few of those in like the latest, latest mocks, but I never corrected the earlier artboards that look slightly off. And, you know, I, I iterated my way towards a better palette, which shouldn't be a problem at GitHub because they do have a design system, but I'm just like <laughs> doing random shit right now. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Stay on message, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> so to be clear, this doesn't, this isn't like symbols for colors. Like these are just colors and whatever, if you, if you change that color later, it won't affect any of the children. This is just for working really loosely. So you can just grab a color really quickly and be, sh- be sure that it's the right one. And if you change that, in the library, future uses of that color will be correct, but past uses won't be. So really what you want to do is you want to do a symbol swatch and have it be driven there. But Again, still 
very bad at setting that up early enough in the project where it's useful. Yeah. But I guess that will be a non-issue once I like just pull in the the primer system. Anyways, I'm a bad designer. Uh, I just <laughs> I, I just don't can't be bothered with that stuff. Ooh, early bullish. on, early on. Ooh, even early on, I'm bullish on symbols, man. Uh, it's helpful for certain things. I think there's a very fine line of over optimizing the wrong design of a component to be uh well i want it to be resizable i want it to be reusable i want all the overrides when probably or there's a high chance that that thing isn't even the right implementation of a the right layout or the right metaphor for what you're trying to accomplish sure so i try and stay i try and walk that line is like if i think i'll reuse this a few more times like if i think there's three more cases then try and go for it otherwise it's just not worth making it responsive and all that yeah, yeah. If it's going to be reused in multiple artboards, absolutely. Which is yeah. harder to predict. It's like, yeah. I don't know if this is the right direction. Yeah, I think you just have to ask yourself that question as you're going along. Like, I've All duplicated this yeah. thing a couple of times. Yeah. Like, maybe it's time for it to become a symbol. But the nice thing about symbols, too, is that you get a, a removal of context. Sometimes when you want it, you can just focus on this one thing without all the junk around it. So working on that symbols page, you know, just in the little artboard, you can kind of have the little world in there and get everything perfect and everything pinned and sized accordingly and then back out without being distracted by all the mess around it. Fair enough. Yeah, I agree. Ah, that was a fun tips and tricks with Marshall. Episode one. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> we can create a side podcast. Only tips and tricks. The tips and tricks uh, RSS feed. No, we'll just hide it in this podcast okay. periodically. Embedded deeply. All right. Uh, we have a few questions sort of speaking of tips and tricks. You want to read this first one, Marshall? So listener Andreas writes in and uh, he asks a really good question. He says... How do you work with developers to get your eight-point grid designs implemented? This is easy for placing a button, but if you actually would align text to a four-point baseline, this is very challenging. Easy to do in Sketch, but super difficult for developers to implement slash understand. For web, this would be even more difficult than for native, but dynamic font sizing can be a challenge as well with this approach. What is helpful to do? How do you balance enforcing this? Boy, what a good question. Lots lots of sub points to talk about, yeah. I get to deliver the bad news. The bad news is I don't know of a good way. I don't know of a good way to make it perfect everywhere all the time. <sighs> Sorry. Yeah. Felt bad saying it, but it's yeah. true. I think um <laughs> it's a hard problem. You can do some things to mitigate disparity. So one of the things you can do is you can make sure that all of your line heights for each of your text sizes, well, first off, you should have a defined finite number of text styles that can exist. And for each of those, you should make sure that your line heights are even numbers or multiples of four. I think a four-point baseline is pretty pretty good. Two-point is even easier to get to because you don't have to jump as much depending on your smaller font sizes. But uh, basically, if you set your line heights to multiples of that baseline unit then you and you snap those text boxes next to each other and code with zero padding or with padding that is also multiples of that baseline you can be sure that there will be internal logic to it um, you can't always guarantee that one column will have a perfect baseline aligned to the column next to it necessarily based on elements above and below it's the wild west especially when you start to get towards you know lesser used platforms and stuff you can make mocks that are pixel perfect 
and have those baselines exactly right and then match, take screenshots of your develop build and compare it to your mocks and see if there's anything off and adjust accordingly. But there's only so many of those platforms that you can do that bespoke for before you just have to say whatever happens, happens. As soon as you start to add dynamic text into this, everything goes out the window. Yeah, the only thing I'd add is um, there's also scenarios where following the rule looks worse than just breaking the rule. Yes. And I think a good example that we talked about before the show was if you have a left aligned image of any sort, like a avatar or an icon, if you try and, and then you have maybe next to it, like a title and a subtitle, if you try and make sure that those are baselined appropriately, you can sometimes end up with the text feeling slightly too high or slightly too low relative to the left image or avatar or something. And so in that case, you should just optically center the text, make sure it just looks balanced, even if technically it's one dip too high or one dip too low. Absolutely. At my last job, before I joined Google, I uh, worked at a company making slot machines, and uh, we did a lot of like 3D animation and character animation and stuff like that. And I was working on this project where um, I was pushing a camera into a big room, and there was a specific perspective that the art director, my, my boss, wanted. And he drew amazing artist. He drew on a piece of paper exactly the angle and perspective that he wanted this final ending point of the shot to be. And try as I might, I changed lenses and focal lengths and all sorts of shit. And it never looked quite right. It never matched up to the drawing that he had drawn that I had scanned in and did an overlay trying to do that exact same thing I was talking about with screenshots earlier. Eventually what I did is I, I grouped everything together and skewed it all as, as a huge group, the entire room and everything in it, and animated it along with the camera so that you couldn't really tell that it was warping, but you ended up on this final image that looked exactly like he wanted it to, and it didn't look out of whack. And the lesson that I took away from it, which has been super useful in the years since, is exactly what you just said. It doesn't have to be right. It just has to look right. Which is very tempting for people to abuse that yeah don't abuse it especially uh but yeah sometimes if you're following the math and doing everything perfect and it just doesn't look right to your designer's eye it's good to just do that little bit of a tweak even if it's slightly wrong in the math yeah for it to look right because it will always look wrong to you even though you know the numbers are right well that's also i would say the the one helpful thing there is having a base too, just because you have such a fine tuning that you can usually move to and be technically on your baseline or grid or like at least using those divisible numbers. Yeah, internally correct. Internally, yeah, locally yeah. correct, Closer, even if yeah. it isn't globally yeah. on, on the same baseline grid. Yeah. Yeah, as long as you maintain that rhythm locally, most people won't notice that, oh, 600 pixels over to the right here, there's another line that's one pixel up from it. Nobody's going to notice that. Also, most people that use products don't think about this or notice this, and you got to be careful of what you spend your time trying to get mathematically perfect. Yes. Like if you're working at a startup and you're worrying about the mathematical purity of your baselines, like you should probably rethinking how you prioritize that or hopefully you've solved every other problem (laughs) you know your product is otherwise perfect and you're down to the to the last few p20 bugs (laughs) that have the lowest priority yeah Yeah, that's never happened in human history so 
Probably not you. That's what I was getting at. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But don't abuse the rule. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, that seems useful. And we have another question since we got through that first one quite quickly. Next one is from friend of the show, Kevin Gutowski. Friend who, of the pod. Friend of the pod. Kevin writes, data is, of course, very important. Yes, this is true. Uh, how do you actually learn from features that you're shipping? What hard metrics or soft metrics are recorded? How long are they being recorded for and by whom? Uh, so that's the question, which is loosely, my interpretation is, how do you manage the measurement of success? Yeah. Loosely? <laughs> what a hell of a question. <laughs> it's a yeah. big one. Good thing for you, Kev. We have the exact right answer. <laughs> so <laughs> this is kind of an unsatisfying answer from my perspective, but my first reaction to this was, I think the lesson here is in the questions you're asking. Like, I think the answer is to ask the questions you just asked. If you're building a feature, if you're building a product, to not ask these questions is to automatically fail. And only when you start to ask these questions can you answer them. The answers will be different for every feature, every company, every product ever. So there is no right answer, but the, the right answer is to ask these questions and come up with answers before you ship. That way you have logging and storage and user journeys in mind for all of this stuff so that you know, here's what we want this feature to do. Here's what we think it will do. Here's our predictions of the future based on our knowledge and our research. And here are the ways we're going to track that so that not only can we be sure that a change has happened, that, but that the change that has happened is because of the thing we launched. Yeah. I think it's just, it, it's making sure you understand like what will prove that we solved the thing, which is a question to ask, but like there's sub questions to arrive at that part of its metrics, part of it's probably user research or user feedback or some sort of polling. Like there's all these different inputs that could answer whether you solved the thing. But it's going to be different for But everybody. just going through that process for everything you launch, you'll get different responses each time or come up with different questions each time specific to the thing being solved for. But as long as you're asking those questions and as long as you're coming up with reasonable, well-informed answers for them and then following up on them after you have the data to prove or disprove those predictions, as long as you're asking those questions, you're in good shape. One question that comes to mind after reading Kev's question was, how long data should flow before you make that call. So for example, you say, we will know we're right if we see 30% engagement or retention over time for the first two months. And that's true. But then months two to four, that goes down. Months four to six, that goes down. And so you've built something that worked in the short term and in the long term actually was the wrong decision. How long do you track that for? And do you revisit things that you've already made calls on long ago? How do at you, what scale do you track at that? At what scale? How do you manage is that? Is this a like, 1% experiment? Is yeah. it a 10%? Is it 100%? You know, like how many people are you testing on it? How much do you trust that that percent is indicative of the whole? Right. These are all good questions. <laughs> okay. No solid answers here. But they're the right questions to be asking. And only you can answer those questions. Only you and your team. You and your team, not yeah. you. Yeah. yeah. Ideally, like the team rallies around. Cool. Well, thanks for the questions, uh, Andreas and Kev. Kev. Appreciate it, as always. Uh, I think we got through those pretty quick, but that feels like a good place to talk about cool stuff and wrap up, Marshall. Indeed. Do a little bit of a shorter episode this time. Yeah. Okay. Cool things. Yeah. Uh, hit me. I have 
been watching Netflix. And I binged, I was going to say television show. Is it still a television show, a streaming show, if it's on Netflix? I watched it on my television. It's on your television, yes. Okay, <laughs> a television show. This television show is entitled Russian Doll. And you haven't seen it, have you, Brian? I have not seen this. I'm, I'm Googling it while you explain it to me, so, okay. so I have a picture in my head. I don't want to say too much about it, other than to say that I watched all uh, 10 episodes, 8 episodes. That's a reasonable number. I watched all of the episodes back to back to back to back to back. I binged the motherfucker, and it was wonderful. <laughs> Brian is making faces. The um, IMDb cover photos or preview photos are buck wild, so I'm I'm really intrigued now. So I don't want to say too much about it. I don't want to, to spoil it. I don't want to let too much out because I think the experience of watching it is worth it going in blind. But here's what I will say. If you've seen Groundhog Day, Groundhog Day with Bill Murray, 80s movie. Yes, I saw it classic yes and you like that movie you'll like this show it's okay. more modern it's it's far more crude okay it's very funny but it's also got the feels just like groundhog day it's also kind of scary at points but it ends really well i thought so the lady who stars in it the protagonist is also the co-creator she's outstanding her she's a, an excellent actor and also the idea of this thing, you know, she's the co-creator, like that the whole idea of this thing is just batshit buck wild. And I really enjoyed it. I'm a big fan of, of time travel type things, which spoiler, I'm not, if you've seen Groundhog Day, you know, um, oh. <laughs> okay. You've seen Groundhog Day. Yes, yes, know, yeah, yeah. A, I never it, thought of that as a time travel movie, but sure. Kind of, right? Yeah. yeah yes, there's time or, or like yeah. time loops, time fuckery of any kind. Yeah. I, I'm a big fan of when it comes to, to media. So. Time foolery? Time foolery. Ooh, time foolery. Uh, I wish this was uh, the main part of the episode because that could be the title. I think that's a good title anyways. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, Amy Poehler is... Uh, part of it like she oh. was part of you know b the behind the scenes stuff she's not in the show i don't think she necessarily even wrote anything but executive produced or something like that yeah it's it's great i highly recommend it i think if you watch the first episode or two you will probably watch the next several if not all of them at once cool well i know what i'm doing this week Mm-hmm. great you're welcome i'll let you know What's your cool thing, Brian? My cool thing is a little bit of a cop-out, but I was just so excited by this on Friday when I tweeted this out. But this fellow, whose name, again, I can't pronounce names, um, <laughs> Zhao Chim, Zhao Chim is his GitHub username. And Zhao Chim opened a pull request on the security checklist repository and just kicked ass with making the entire website accessible to use. So now you can use the entire security checklist website with your keyboard. Uh, he added a bunch of accessibility labels for people on screen oh. readers. Wow. Uh, just on his own, like closed eight issues that people had opened over the last month or so of, oh, hey, this, this isn't really friendly to, you know, people with a screen reader or something mm -hmm, like that. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, I tweeted out the shout out. I'm just so blown away by like the way open source can make this kind of stuff happen. Just people see problems and, and take the initiative to fix it. And uh, yeah, it was really cool. So I doubt uh, Zhao Chim is listening. If so, I'm sorry for how I'm pronouncing your name. Uh, and secondly, thanks for the, the pull request. So we have, uh, we'll put links in the show notes to the pull request itself because the code is fun to look through. Uh, but also you can just check out the updated security checklist website and you can 
tab around and use spacebar to open links and hit enter to uh, collapse sections. It's really, really nice uh, to use. Yeah. Is there like a question mark hint legend of like what does what on the? Uh, I think it would, it's basically the defaults that anybody who navigates with a keyboard would expect. Like tab oh. is, goes to the next thing, space gotcha, gotcha. activates or focuses that thing. Cool. You know what I'm talking about though? Like basically if you use any Google product, if you hit question mark, like shift. Oh, I see. Shift yeah, no, it doesn't, slash. it doesn't have that. Because yeah. these are all just like default web, yeah, even web interaction key commands. Yeah. Even better. Nothing cool. custom. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm big on accessibility. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. so and awesome. it's bad that I didn't have a lot of this stuff in the first version, but also I'm, I'm learning. Like this was a huge learning pull request for me to see the way that uh, he went about making some of this stuff work better. So yeah, really cool. Do you think you'll be able to implement these types of changes in future things you build having seen what he did? And Yeah. Yeah. Some stuff is, was lazy and I shouldn't have done. So for example, I made it so that the check marks were custom elements. Like I just made it basically a div with a gradient and I put like an SVG check mark on top of it. But if you screen readers and uh, tabbing around treats the actual checkbox element, like an input type equals checkbox, that is treated very differently than a div, which it doesn't know is styled as a checkbox. Yeah. So it's just lazy on my part to actually just implement a proper input type equals checkbox with the right styling so that it behaves consistently across browsers and things like that. So anyways, nice. yeah, a lot of it was laziness that I just uh, guess wasn't really aware of. So yeah, definitely learned things that I will try to <laughs> not be lazy about in the future. <laughs> no, that's cool. Uh, you know, yeah, it's okay to make mistakes as long as you only make each mistake once. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or twice or three times. Okay. fine. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's what we call a fuck up, right? Yeah, sure. <laughs> All right. This was fun. Thank you everyone yeah. for listening. Great questions. Yeah. Thanks for the questions. Send us more. Tweet at us. We're at Design Details FM on Twitter. We love DMs and we, Marshall and I, talk about all of the questions that come through. And, and some of them we aren't able to answer just because we don't do listener questions every week. But we have some in the backlog. And so, yeah, if, if we don't answer them, it's not because the question's bad. It's just because we uh, have to prioritize and switch up the show format every week a little bit. So before we go, be sure to check out Abstract. Abstract made this episode of Design Details possible. Abstract is a design tool for design teams living in the future. It is a source of truth version control design tool that lets you collaborate and present and request feedback and never ever again overwrite your own work when working on uh, sketch files on multiple computers. Uh, It is the future of designing with multiple people at the same time. You should go learn more at goabstract.com. You can sign yourself up and your team up for a 30-day free trial today. Once again, that's goabstract.com. Thank you again so much to Abstract. Thanks, Abstract. Much appreciated for the sponsorship this episode. And thank you. Of course, as always, uh, Drew and Sarah, we're sending this in late on a Saturday night. We're trying to get these episodes out a little bit earlier. So thank you, Sarah and Drew, for mastering and editing and producing this uh, on such a great time frame. And uh, if you want to hear more shows, we've got new shows on the Spec Network. Oh, yeah. boy. Yeah. Uh, we've got one coming soon that I'm really excited about, but it's not out yet. So when that's out, I will be talking about it. Uh, but Secrets. we also recently added uh, Framework, which is a new podcast about the process of researching, planning, and building uh, a product. That is hosted by Tom Crichton and Robert Hayes. You should go check that out. That's at spec.fm. Uh, of course, along with all the other shows for designers and developers just like you. 
Thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll catch you next week. Bye.